This reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Jesus is teaching on prayer. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him in the midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because of his friend, because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So if I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you, Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, that door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, Will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for summer. Thank you um, that you are good. And thank you for your word. I pray that you would um, illuminate our hearts and our minds as we read and as we uh, spend time with you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, we're continuing our um, series on prayer and uh, looking uh, at what prayer is, why, why bother, what will happen if I do, and in particular today, what does it mean to ask God for our daily bread? Um, despite the fall in church attendance in the UK, many people will admit to having prayed at some point. Apparently, six out of seven people still believe that prayers can be answered. And this is especially true of teenagers and those in their 20s. And when asked what they might pray for, 31% said they would pray for peace in the world. 27% would pray for an end to poverty. Around a similar proportion would pray for family members. And only 15%, interestingly, would pray for guidance or healing for themselves. And 15% to cope with stress in their lives. In the face of the tragedies uh, that we have seen in the last few weeks, Manchester, London Bridge, and now Grenfell Tower as well, People that do not normally pray find themselves praying. When a situation is beyond us, it seems like there's an instinctive response to reach beyond ourselves. And the question is, to whom? Who are you praying to? Where does this instinct to reach beyond yourself come from? The daily bread that we ask for varies widely. In West London right now, people are crying out for news of loved ones that are still missing. They are praying for a place to sleep, for food and water. And then there are those wordless prayers, prayers that have no words for those in profound grief. I wonder what things you're asking God for at the moment. What is the daily bread that you are asking God for? Maybe it's health. Maybe it's strength and stamina to care for elderly relatives. Or maybe it's challenging children or a place to live. Or maybe it's to do with your job situation. Or maybe it's to do with companionship and loneliness. Young children are often very straightforward about prayer. I found these uh, gems earlier in the week. Dear God, my mum tells me that you have a reason for everything on earth. I guess broccoli is one of your mysteries. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel wouldn't kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother from Larry. Dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. That was cool, from Eugene. Our passage today is all about prayer. And the scene starts with Jesus praying. And his disciples are with him, but they don't seem to be praying. They seem to be watching him, and they wait until he is finished, and then they ask him to teach them. You see, we see that prayer is caught and taught. The disciples seem to be inspired by Jesus' example. But I also need practical teaching as well. But prayer is caught as well as taught. 
And Jesus begins to teach them to pray, firstly by providing a framework of the kind of things we would say in verses 1 to 4. Secondly, by dealing with misunderstandings surrounding prayer. And he looks at two things that keep us from praying. And these both concern the character of God. In verses 5 to 10, he addresses the misunderstanding that God is too busy to answer. He is not interested in my prayers. And secondly, in verses 11 to 13, he addresses this misunderstanding that if God does answer, it's not going to be good. I'm not going to like the answer. And so Jesus begins to teach them in verse 2. And he starts by saying, when you pray, say, Father, Father. Here we are on Father's Day. A day to celebrate fathers and all that they are and all that they do. It's a day of mixed emotions. Maybe you have celebrations planned later on this afternoon in the sun. Or maybe you've already had some sort of breakfast or um, um, getting, get together with, with family members. But maybe you're grieving the loss of your father. Or maybe you longed to be a father, but it never happened. Or maybe you have simply never known your father. Or maybe you're aware that your relationship with your father is just not quite what you want it to be. And when you look round for the right card, the, the greetings never quite match up to how it actually is with your father. When you think about your father, you feel disappointed. Or maybe you're a brand new father, which would be joyful but sleep deprived. And whatever place you are coming from today, there is one thing that we all have in common. We have all had or have a father at some point. And at the heart of Jesus' teaching is the reality that God is father as well as son and Holy Spirit. And in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. But did you know that just that one sentence alone is utterly extraordinary? You won't find anything else like it in any other world religion. Our Father, you pray to a person. God is person. He is close enough to care. But he is also in heaven. He is transcendent and powerful and powerful enough to do something about the things that you ask him and the things in our world. In the Islamic faith, there are 99 names for Allah in the Quran, but Father is not one of them. In Hinduism, there are millions of gods, some of which are personal, perhaps even family gods, but none have ultimate power over everything. The Christian faith holds both of these together. Our Father in heaven, signifying intimacy and relationship, but also reverence and awe. The God of the Bible is close enough to care and powerful enough to do something about it. But what kind of Father are we talking about? What kind of God is God the Father? 
You see, many people's objections to God boil down to a misunderstanding of the character of God. Why didn't God stop the Manchester bombing or the London Bridge attack or the Grenfell Tower fire? Why didn't he send help sooner? Does he not care? Is he indifferent to human suffering? Is he lazy? Does he take delight in human suffering? People's objections go to the heart of God's character. What kind of father is he? And even within the church, the idea of God as father can be problematic. And whether we are aware of it or not, we sometimes view God through the lens of our relationship with our earthly father. And if that relationship is healthy and life-giving, then it's a really positive one. There are lots of analogies that you can draw. But if that relationship is difficult, perhaps a father that is distant or absent or estranged or abusive or simply had no time for you, then we need to be clear that your heavenly father is not like this. And Jesus addresses the character of the Father in the next few verses. And he looks at two things that might keep us from praying. Firstly, in verses 5 to 10, this idea that the Father is too busy to answer our prayers. He is not interested. Jesus first asks the disciples to imagine that they are the person doing the asking, the praying. And he tells the story of a man that goes to visit his friend in the middle of the night. This once happened to us. I don't know if you know uh, about Conrad, but he sometimes gets times and dates slightly off. And sometimes it's a few minutes, sometimes it's hours, sometimes it's days. Um, I won't go into too much more detail on, detail on that today because it is Father's Day after all. But on this particular occasion, he was out by a week and we had some friends coming from Germany, and um, they arrived at our house in the middle of the night, and I woke to Conrad sort of shaking me, saying, Sharon, our Beata and Andre have arrived a week early, and so there we were, making up beds at 2 a.m. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but I can tell you, it's not a great time to show up at someone's house. It's not a great time to be asking for something. Now, in New Testament times, this scenario was slightly more common than it would be for us. And we need to look at this passage through Middle Eastern eyes, which um, New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey helps us do really well, particularly in his book, Poet and Peasant. And people needed to travel at night because it's too hot during the day in desert areas. And to break up the journey, obviously they need somewhere to stay. And the other thing we need to know is that in Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is very important, but it is the responsibility of the entire community to provide hospitality for a guest passing through the village. The host is out of bread, so he goes to a colleague or a friend. And the host is basically asking his friend to fulfill his duty to the whole community. And, as, and usually, when facing this scenario, as long as the request is modest enough, to refuse would be unthinkable. 
and what the host asked for could not be more basic. It's three loaves of bread, the bare minimum of a Middle Eastern meal. And so Jesus is basically describing a scenario that would never happen because of all of the cultural norms. To paraphrase, it's like he's saying this. Can you imagine going to a neighbor at night, asking for help to entertain a friend, and getting ridiculous excuses about a locked door and sleeping children? And his his disciples at the end of verse 7 would essentially be thinking, no, we cannot imagine this situation, that this uh, sleeping man's unhelpfulness will be the talk of town the next day. This would never, ever happen. Now, how to make sense of the rest of this rests on the meaning of the word in the middle of verse 8. In the Bible reading today, it's read boldness. But actually, this passage is not actually about boldness because it's a relatively normal situation to go to a friend and ask for help, even in the night in Middle Eastern culture. It's also been translated persistence by some. But this story isn't also about persistence in prayer. The man has his response straight away. He doesn't have to persist. Now, we could look to the parable of the persistent widow for a mandate to persist in prayer, and we definitely should do that. But this story is not about persistence. It's not about the persistence of the the host asking for help. More recent translations of this word are shamelessness or avoidance of shame. And so the passage would read like this. Verse 8 would read like this. I tell you, though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of shamelessness, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And Kenneth Bailey also makes the point that if you look at the structure as a whole, shamelessness doesn't apply to the man asking. It applies to the sleeping man who gets up and gives the help. In other words, the sleeping man will get up and help, whether he likes it or not, to preserve his own good name, to avoid shame in the community. And the host receives much more than three loaves of bread. He will give him whatever he asks. There's an abundance that comes back at him. And so Kenneth Bailey summarizes it in this way. He says, when you go to this kind of a neighbor, everything is against you. It is night. He is asleep in bed. The door is locked. His children are asleep. He may not even like you. And yet, you will receive even more than you ask. This is because your neighbor is a man of integrity, and he will not violate that quality. And so Jesus is saying, if you can be confident of having your needs met in this situation where everything is stacked against you, how much more so will this be the case when you go to your heavenly Father? He also has an integrity of character that will never change. Your heavenly father is not too busy. We live in a world where we ask the question, who can I trust? Who is it that I can trust today? Jesus is saying, you can trust God. You can trust the father. 
He is trustworthy. His character will never change. And when you pray, your prayers will be heard and they will be answered. Not always as we expect, but there will be an answer. And that is because God is good and his character does not change. When we hear of the disasters that we have seen in our country in the last few weeks, the temptation is to think, God must be so busy sorting all this over there that he's too, he doesn't have time for me here, or it makes my request seem mundane and irrelevant. But that could not be further from the truth. We need to pray for Grenfell Tower victims. We need to act. We need to help the poor. But we need to also continue coming to him ourselves because his arms are big enough for all of it. And as if to emphasize the point over and over and over again, Jesus then repeats this six times in verses 9 and 10. It's, it's as though he knew prayer would be hard, isn't it? in the way that he teaches his disciples. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. The interesting thing about knocking is that in the story he tells, the man doesn't knock. Because in, a, in that culture, a stranger would knock at the door, but a friend calls out from afar as they're approaching so they don't cause alarm to the, the person sleeping. And so a stranger knocks, and we know that the author of this gospel, the, this biography, is a, is a Gentile, and he's writing to people on the outside. Do you feel on the outside today? Do you feel like God is a stranger to you? Let me reassure you, you are not a stranger to him. He says to you today, ask and you will receive. You have an opportunity today to respond to the living God, but he will never violate your freedom to choose but ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. Behind the events of history have been praying people. People prayed for the end of apartheid for 30 years until it happened. People prayed for the fall of the Iron Curtain for decades until it happens. And there are also story after story of God's practical provision for his people. We could even look at our own building here and say, actually, if you'd asked us two and a half years ago, would we be sitting where we are now with everything complete and more or less all of the money accounted for? I don't know. God has provided for us in incredible, incredible ways. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And then we move on to the second thing that can keep us from praying in verses 11 to 13. The second thing is that the Father may well answer me, but I won't like it. I won't like what comes at me. How do I know if what comes back at me will be good? Is it going to be worth praying in the first place? And this time, Jesus gets the disciples 
to imagine that they are the ones answering the prayer. Do you see how he switches it round for this half of the passage? He says, imagine you're the one listening to the request. And he says that if you have concerns about the goodness of God, then look no further than your own children. Which of you fathers, if your son asks you for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Snakes and scorpions could be lethal. When your children ask you for something nice to eat, you don't give them something harmful. There's a, out of love for them, there's a desire to want to give good gifts to your children. And we do this, even though compared to God, we are evil. We are evil. We are not a good person. It's hard to swallow. It is a reality. I am not the person that I want to be, even on my best day. Only God is 100% good. But if we manage to give these good gifts, even though we are evil, how much more will your heavenly Father answer you with good things. Unanswered prayer is a huge area. It is a huge area. And it's, you know, we can't even possibly begin to address it right now. Except to say sometimes it's to do with us and sometimes it's to do with God. And sometimes it's because God does answer with good things and sometimes what we ask for, either in the present or the future, will not be good for us. And God alone can sometimes see the bigger picture. But the Father is good. He can be trusted. He can be trusted even in the midst of terrible suffering and strife. I saw a tweet this week from Graham Tomlin, who is the Bishop of Kensington and Chelsea, which is where the Grenfell Tower is. And he said, I've just been to visit Grenfell victims. I can't stop thinking about a couple who just found out they had lost their five-year-old son in the fire. Where do you put that? What do you do with that? How do we respond to that. And as I reflected on this, I was reminded that there is a sense in which God the Father knows what it is like to give up a son. He knows what it is like to be separate and cut off from the son. The most famous verses in scripture say, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The privilege of prayer has come at a high price that God has given his only son and that son has borne the weight of our sin and our evil so that we can approach God as a friend 
Before Jesus, people used to die by entering the presence of God unauthorized. Only certain individuals could do it. And now we are told anyone who asks will receive. We can approach God as a friend. This is an amazing privilege. And when we do so, he doesn't just answer our prayers. He gives us himself. He gives us the Holy Spirit. If you are asking for more of the Holy Spirit, you can be sure that this prayer will be answered. And the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. God says, I don't just provide your daily bread. I am bread itself. I am the bread of life. Come to me. Pray to me. Keep on praying. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Pray for your friends. Pray for your schools. Pray for your children. Pray for this church. Pray for its leaders. Pray for more of the Holy Spirit. When you pray, the world changes. When you don't pray, it doesn't. It's that simple. St. John Chrysostom of the uh, 5th century, wrote this. He said, Prayer is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions. It has extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, rescued cities from destruction, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Prayer works. When we pray, things happen. And one thing that I want to leave you with that was particularly impressed upon me as I was preparing this sermon is to urge fathers and men, pray. You need to pray. You need to pray more. You see, Jesus is probably talking to some women, but he is definitely talking to men. And yet when we think about prayer, when we think about prayer warriors, do we think about men as much as women? I believe God is calling us to pray, and he's calling men to pray alongside women. Pray. Fathers, pray. Men, pray. Your heavenly Father is close enough to care. He is powerful enough to do something about it. And he will answer. He will answer because he is a good Father. And his character will never change. And you can trust him with your life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a good father when so much around us is not good. Thank you that you are good. Thank you for the privilege of coming to you and praying, Lord. Help us to pray. Send your Holy Spirit to help help us to pray, Lord. And Lord, I pray this morning for those that feel far from you. I pray that they would know the, Father, the Father's love for them today. Bring them close to you, Lord. And I pray for those here who might have never prayed. I pray that you would come close to them. In Jesus' name, amen.